0: Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. You're home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other thanks for spending some time with us enjoy today's show welcome 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 we are talking politics and religion without killing each other i am your host and so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill in good faith. It's really easy to find us and support us. As you know, that's on politicsandreligion.us, politicsandreligion.us, check it out. Becoming a patron will really help us continue to have conversations like the one we're having today with Timber Hawkeye. Timber is the best-selling author of Buddhist Bootcamp, and faithfully religionless, both of which I thoroughly appreciated and enjoyed. His books and the Buddhist Boot Camp podcast offer a secular and non-sectarian approach to being at peace with the world, both within and around us, with the intention to awaken, enlighten, enrich, and inspire. Timber, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm phenomenal. Thank you for uh, having this platform. I appreciate what you do. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time. You know, I, I finally, I, I, so I got through the books and, and toward the end of, I read Buddhist bootcamp second and toward hmm. the end of it, one of the last chapters is the charter for compassion. And it occurred to me, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, but you're like a living, breathing, diversified portfolio of religious, you know, uh, practices, if you will, you, you were born Jewish. Uh, you have a Catholic prayer that you meditate on, you, you
1: know, you, Yeah, or, ordained Buddhist, yeah, Hindu mantra, you name it. Yeah. Could
0: you describe, you know, uh, a little bit about all that? Uh, I, I know it's kind of a, a menagerie, but I'd love for you to hear more from you about it than from me. <laughs> sure. I,
1: I was born and raised uh, in Israel or Palestine, whatever you're more comfortable calling it. And uh, so I didn't I was not exposed to any uh, other religions other than Judaism until I moved to the U.S. my first year of high school. And we didn't just move to the U.S. We moved from a tiny little town to San Francisco. So it was a huge culture shock. Uh, There were more more than 3,000 students at my high school, which is more people than there were in my town. And suddenly I was surrounded by different cultures and religions and ethnicities. And instead of following in my parents' footsteps and even advice to stick to my own, so to speak, I wanted to do the exact same opposite. I had questions. I wanted to know everything about everyone, why they believe what they do, and first what they believe, and then why they believe what they do, because immediately the qu- the next question is, why? <laughs> so it was uh, fascinating, not from a place of judgment, but from inquiry. And over the years of studying all of that with psychology simultaneously to understand how we're capable of accepting certain truths and rejecting others, I've cultivated, like you said, this, I don't know what to call it. it initially, I just called it Timberism because it just it wasn't organized. It was just my own idea of beliefs and philosophies. And and its it was only later, I'm trying to remember where I was. I was living in Hawaii, working at a frozen yogurt shop, and uh, the, these regular customers would come in, and and they would talk to me, and I would tell them, yeah, you know, I I don't don't drink, I don't smoke, I I don't eat meat, I don't, and they're like, dude, you sound like a Buddhist monk, and I'm like, what does that mean? Like, what 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 does that have to do with me? You know, and so I I looked it up, and sure enough, I was like, wow, my lifestyle that I've been living for more than a decade is very much the same as that of a Buddhist monk. And so I dove really deep into Buddhism. I remember uh, hearing the Dalai Lama speak when I didn't even know who he was at first. And, and he was talking about self-control, determination, freedom from anger. And three years prior to that, I had those same words tattooed on my chest, you know, as, as rules to live by. So it, my first thought was, who's this guy? You know, that's my gig. You know, It was just this real, <laughs> like, interesting coming together of worlds of i'm not that special or unique and then there's nothing wrong with me i've just been hanging out with the wrong people (laughs) not 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 wrong but people who did not mirror back to me the possibilities it's the equivalent of growing up in a really rural town and then going to berkeley all of a sudden california and just being blown away by options so i didn't just pick up a book on buddhism i moved into a buddhist monastery that's just kind of how i do things and And yet, I remember calling one of my teachers and telling him, you know, that here, because first, Buddhism, there's 800 different schools of Buddhism. It's just every time it moved, it adopted some of the local flavor. Uh, It's still better than the 40,000 denominations of Christianity, I think there are globally. But it's still, there's no one rule of Buddhism that applies to all. It's just what a Buddhism just, attracted me most because they didn't pretend to have answers. They just had a lot of questions. You know, you ask any Buddhist who created the world I, mean, I don't know. Where do we come from? I don't know. Where are we going? I don't know. And it, I love that they didn't come up with something. Some of them, again, have theories, you know, some of them do believe in reincarnation, but it's not a prerequisite. Buddhism is not a set rules of guidelines or any dogma. It's an invitation to ask questions. So that really, really appealed to me. And and to answer your question, even though, yes, I was raised Jewish to some degree, we never celebrated any Jewish holidays. Judaism was not a big part of our household. I, I felt always that Judaism, and I don't mean any offense about this, but inherently had this sense of entitlement to it, the superiority complex of we're the OG, you know, like it all started with us. Even even Jesus was Jewish, you know, and like it was just this notion of. This prayer that we kept chanting uh, that, that was Adonai, wa Elohim, my God is the God. And it didn't matter to me in Israel when saying that I'm just like, well, yeah, my God's the God like what th- that's that's a redundant statement but then when I moved to the states and I was like oh there's other gods and Jews believe their God is the God meaning all other gods are false gods I was like well that just seems really belittling and nullifying of someone else's experience so so that's why I walked away from Judaism it's not that I don't believe it has value or that it has enriched many people's lives and still does it just doesn't resonate with me as the one and only path up the mountain it's a path but it's not the path. Am I making sense at all?
0: Yeah, no, you bring up a really interesting point. And I hadn't really realized in my own default thinking about Judaism. I grew up very observantly Jewish. We went to an Orthodox synagogue. I actually became a Christian about 22 years ago. Bible thump and born again, uh, you know, the whole the whole deal. However, in the last three months, I've been meditating, which is a whole new I, I think I've opened a whole new door Pandora's box or something. Anyway, you bring up a really interesting point that I hadn't thought about, because I always as long as I can remember, I always thought about the um, hero Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Right. So I always thought about that in terms of. Reacting to the place where the our ancestors were, and to the other cultures around them, whether you know it was Moses, you know, talking to Pharaoh and saying, "Listen, you think that you're God, but we worship the God," you know, as opposed to, so I, I guess I I contextualized historically that type of prayer and that type of posture. Um, and But the other question that you bring up is a really valid one that I've had. I've had this conversation with my friends again and again, many ways up the mountain kind of a thing, sort of a, um, it's more than pluralistic. It's, um, I don't know how to describe it, but the, the conclusion that I arrived at a long time ago was that, Not all truth is exclusive. And you talk about the difference between truth and fact. So we're getting into a whole other set of areas here, but there is an exclusivity to some truth, Mm -hmm.
1: right? Yeah. And again, and that's the part of Judaism that felt very exclusive to me. And, and to me, if, if God is inclusive, (laughs) then, then, it just it just didn't make sense. Um, and, and in the same vein that again, with no disrespect, that that certain aspects of Christianity don't make sense. Now I love Jesus, he sits on my altar right next to St. Francis and the Buddha. They get along just fine. But <laughs> but in the words of Gandhi, I, I love your Christ, not your Christians. And I think there is a distinction, and I and I always say, you know, don't, don't worry about being Christian, be Christ-like. Don't worry about being Buddhist, be Buddha-like. You know, just let's not get Attached to the label because that gives us a sense of identity, which is again a slippery slope to a superiority. It's like, oh well, I'm Christian, or well, I'm Buddhist, or don't tell me which. Show me. Does that does
0: that make sense? Yeah, the believer's behavior version is the most read Bible version there is. You you know, we're jumping right to the heart of it. I was going to get to this later before you got to know me a little bit better, but I think where I. I wanted to draw some distinctions because a lot of your critique of religion, uh, um, organized religion, really resonated with me. But there's one aspect, at least of my experience, that you didn't talk as much about from from what I've read so far. And that is my participation in religious practice, either growing up or still to this day, because we still have Seder and you know, have, uh, do, do things because I'm still a Jew for me, all of, and even, you know, as a Christian, when I go to church and, you know, uh, participate in some of the rituals, I, it, to me, it's practice, it's partly practice, uh, but partly participation in a story. And, and I'm placing myself and understanding myself. And there's a profundity to understanding who I am in a larger story but uh, d- does that make sense or it, it
1: does it's it just when you keep expanding the story when you zoom out even more then you know who you are is not a jew it's you know it it's it would to me that would be the equivalent of identifying with your hair color when you were a five <laughs> you know that's, it's like talk about a slippery slope i mean, everybody <laughs> that's what i'm getting to so we and and so you and so if you start segregating people by hair color, you know, and then some people have a little bit of black going in there and a little bit of gray growing in there. And and my eyebrows are like four different colors just because <laughs> there's some red, there's some brown, there's some black and there's a lot of gray. And and if you start segregating, but then what happens when you come across someone who, you know, and so what I'm saying is if we try to figure out who we are without using those limitations of yeah the religion with which you were raised or. You know, yeah, you can practice Seder and and whatnot and not be Jewish, or you can practice it and be Jewish, but not practice other parts of Judaism. I think that was the first slippery slope for me. When I asked my dad as a kid, I was like, I don't know about this story in the Bible, you know, because growing up, we were we had to read the Bible. It it was not at home. Again, we were not a religious family, but academically in school, it was a required it was like math, geography, Bible. (laughs) It was just and. And I would ask my dad, I was like, I don't, I'm not really buying into this story. And he's like, well, you don't have to believe this story. And I'm like, but it's all in the same book. So how can you read one chapter and say, well, that I don't believe that ever happened. And then read the next one and base your entire life on it being true. So I'm not saying in any way that Judaism or Islam or Christianity, any of it is a lie. I, I, I'm never... Never would I do that. I don't think the world is full of lies. I think it's full of truths. Yeah. And so, as long as we put a small T on our truth, it's my truth, we're great. The moment we put a capital T on it, the truth, meaning we think it's a universal truth, notice how whenever someone believes in a universal truth, it's always conveniently enough their own. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I am Danielle Moody.
0: I am Wajahat Ali.
1: And my guide is 2022 starting off with a banger. And Democracy-ish is going to be here to be your official guide out of the gaslight and the crazy.
0: We will try our best to
1: navigate this hellscape as our freedoms and democracy under active assault. We will take you
0: through the gauntlet with humor and hope and frustration and pain and allow you not to be gaslit.
1: That is your new Democracy-ish.
0: You described that moment that you just referred to in one of the, I think it was in Buddhist boot camp. Uh, you were eight, I think you said, and it, Bible study was mandatory in the school. I'm guessing you were still in Israel at the time. And you came to the realization that you didn't believe everything in the Bible really happened. What I found really poetic, ironic, beautiful in a way was that. First of all, I, I was fascinated by how how precocious of an eight year old you must have been, you know. But also that interaction with your dad when he uh, told me to think of it like a fairy tale. Well, yeah, like read it like literature in a way. But yeah. also it also sparked uh, an enthusiasm to study religion. Yes. So that that to me felt ironic. But, but so like go, I said, going back
1: to Moses, you know, oh, you believe in these gods, and we believe in this god. Instead of going to the pharaoh and going tell me more a little bit about your God. Like I already know enough about mine. I don't need to tell you about mine. I know mine. I want to know about yours. To me, that's inclusivity. You know, when when Jesus said, share the truth, it doesn't mean take what you have and share it with others. Like it to me, share, sharing is, is a reciprocal. It's a cyclical, you know, don't just sit there and preach, but listen. And you know, that's what I take from it is that it, we are there to sit with people who believe the exact opposite of what we do, not to prove ourselves right or superior or to prove them wrong, but to learn, to grow. So we can walk away. And and I've mentioned it, I think, in faithfully, if someone tells me the sky's purple, I don't argue with them. I don't need to prove to them that it isn't. I don't need to tell them what I just walk away from that conversation, knowing that to some people the sky looks purple. Mm. It doesn't jeopardize the blueness of my sky. But now I have a better understanding that not everyone's sky is blue. And that to me, that's beautiful. It's not restricting. It's not wrong. It doesn't affect me in any way other than I now have a larger capacity to love more people, not less.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're just we're already describing what I've been most at odds with because I came to Christianity quite late. Christianity, I think, especially contemporary American evangelicalism has a tendency often to look a lot more like colonialism. There's this sort of we own this, this is ours. and mm. to the extent that you agree with us on X, y, and z principles, you're welcome to be part of you know the I don't know the the, the ones who own it. you know so I I, I don't know there's that um, there's that sheen to it that I'm like that's not quite what I'm reading because I read I read I, I like to think that I read I read my, the Bible every day. I like to think that I read theologically or philosophically. And some of those principles that I'm deriving directly from scripture are very much at odds with what I'm seeing in the church and what folks in the church seem to prioritize. And listen, to be fair, you describe a couple of experiences that these contradictions aren't necessarily unique to Christianity. We're just maybe just the most loud and obnoxious about it these days. So, wow. Wow. I, I know I should go to my questions, but you're you're no rousing. no. We, I mean,
1: we can keep going and diving in because it's it's fascinating that, you know, again, we arrived at what I think is a very similar place, but taking very different paths. And the the key I take from it is just to keep asking questions, mm. just keep staying curious, never, never think you've reached some plateau where you're like, I now have the answers because. For whatever reason, I mean, I so I, I just put the final touches on, on my third book. And the very first quote in it is, believe those who search for the truth. Be very skeptical of those who claim to have found it. Yeah. Because that is really at the core of everything I write and talk about is just hold it all lightly. You know, so whether it's Buddhism saying, oh, Lord, Buddha, this. I was like, hey, easy there, tiger. <laughs> you know, just <laughs> hold up. Or you know, or whether it's people killing in the name of, of religion, and they've even done it in the name of Buddhism, or people insisting that Buddhism is a religion or that it isn't—it's any kind of white-knuckling way to go about anything doesn't resonate with me. So I have a, a question for you: If yeah. you, you know, you say you read the Bible every day and you get a lot of uh, really wonderful philosophical, theoretical, the- theological—all of these things—from it that enrich you. Would it make a difference to you at all at any point? Who wrote it? Meaning if you read the exact same thing and and, and maybe you thought it was scripture, maybe you thought it was Christian and then you later found out it wasn't, would that diminish its value?
0: I'd like to say, I don't think so. I'd like to say no. If I was, well, yeah, I actually, I'm comfortable with that because listen, first of all, When I read Genesis 1 and 2, I am, (laughs) my belief in God or my theological framework isn't contingent upon the seven literal 24-hour day thing. And I I joked about this the other day, uh, because I live in a valley where this guy, John MacArthur, he's the head of Masters University, and he's He's world renowned for being a Bible literalist and a fundamentalist in that regard. And the seven literal 24 hour day thing, you just got to start there when you go to master's college. Um, And a lot of churches in this area, it's all about that. I'm like, listen, I'm Jewish. I know my people. And let's just let's just submit to the possibility that the 2 million, 3 million or so people at were at the foot of Mount Sinai and heard the voice of God, those first few, you know, words that that are recorded in Genesis one. When it got to the word day, I guarantee you that not a single one of my people said, "I wonder if he means a literal twenty-four hour day." Like you're just not hearing that part of the story very well if we're stuck on that. So, hmm. to your question, if it if it was, I've heard various versions of this, and it really doesn't disturb. It doesn't disturb the pillars of of my belief structure and what is feeding my moral, ethical structure
1: Perfect framework. And, and that's what I'm saying. If Christianity helps you find your moral compass and you do good in the world, I don't care why you do good in the world. I don't care if you do it in the name of Jesus or in the name of your Aunt Betty. It's yes. so irrelevant to me. That is not because. So that's why I say, why, why are we focusing so much on the messenger and not the message? That's my big question, whether it be Buddha or Jesus. It, it To me, that's missing the point.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I I, I do have a question about sort of your life trajectory. It, and I wondered, you mentioned that your parents disowned you when you were 18. Yeah. It had to do with a, 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 a girlfriend. Someone that
1: chose to date that they did not approve, you know, and that started, interestingly enough, they didn't approve who I started dating as soon as we moved to the States. They, okay. they, you know, first they're like, stick to your own, like I said earlier. And they said, you know, um, you you got to meet a nice Jewish girl. And I'm like, listen, <laughs> I go to public high school in San Francisco. There are six of us out of 3000 who can pass for white. Let's just throw myself into that equation just just to give it some statistical numbers. And you want me out of that dating pool to find a Jewish girl. Like, that's just, that's just not fair. It's like taking me to Baskin Robbins and telling me you're only allowed to have vanilla. And I wanted to try all the different flavors. And so I did. And so immediately, initially, I remember uh, dating this one girl and, and I thought, okay, well, she's not Jewish, but she's really nice. And her parents are really great. And, and, you know, her name is Rachel. And I'll just, I'll tell my parents about her and Maybe if they'll hear that she's so kind and, and wonderful and welcoming and, and generous, maybe it won't matter that she's not Jewish. Oh, it mattered. It was like, you're not allowed to see her ever again. And if you do, we're going to send you back to Israel and you'll have to serve in the army. And I'm like, whoa, okay. So I took two weeks, just waited for the dust to settle and then told them, oh, I met this girl. Her name is Rebecca and and she's Jewish. and I'm, Same girl. I don't think till today they have any idea that I just continued dating Rachel. We just all started calling her Rebecca. Her parents are calling Rebecca. It was just this <laughs> thing to just, that's kind of why I asked the question, like what if someone switched the cover on your Bible and what you've been reading all along is the Quran? Would that matter? You know, or to me, it wisdom is wisdom. So yeah, they disowned me because of who I chose to date. And fast forward a few years later, my sister who's got three kids threatened to do the same thing to her own which oh. just broke my heart yeah so it's anyway i don't i don't you didn't ask a question yet but i just wanted to clarify that that did happen but i was already 18. there's nothing they could do at that point right, right. so they just stopped talking to me and that's when i changed my name moved away and i, and I was just like you know in israel um your last name is called your family name and i just yeah. they weren't my family anymore and i just yeah i I just completely started a whole new life, and I was like, I need to leave that behind me so I can step ahead And we're now we're we're good. It took them a, a while. I think my dad blamed himself. Mm. you know, oh if I didn't move him from Israel, he would have he wouldn't have strayed. and I'm like, I'm not straying. <laughs> like, can we just focus that I have a moral compass that I'm choosing who I'm dating based on qualities that are important, not based on hair color religion? Yeah, you know because that's how i see it so but you still haven't asked a question i just
0: no it's interesting because my father when i first became a christian considered uh sitting shiva for me but mm. ultimately came to the conclusion that his relationship with me was more important and and in that process he also blamed himself that we moved that he didn't send us to yeshiva that you know all these decisions that he made and he he, didn't
1: brainwash you enough. And there was still a crack for light to come in. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you're saying a lot that, that really does again, resonate because I think that truth is, or seeking truth, even just that the path to seeking truth, like, listen, if God is God, like he can handle it. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's
1: yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but if we have a very specific view of God and and, and God's only one thing, yeah. Again, Gandhi said it, you could be sitting on the bus next to God and totally dismiss it because it he doesn't look the way you thought he would. It's yeah. like so just so just treat everything and everyone like God, you know, and, and th- you're good, you're fine. It's it's the the story. I don't know if you've ever read The Holy Man. It's a wonderful story about a bunch of people who are standing in line to get to the top of the mountain and talk to the holy man. And as soon as the door opens, they go, I want to see the holy man. And the, the person takes them all the way to the back door, opens the door and says, have a great day. And they're like, but we came to see the holy man. He's like, you did. <laughs> right. And Jesus, Jesus actually talks about that. I'm sure. I'm sure. But the, I mean, the, the beauty of the story is that every chapter is actually about a different But the stories that are happening on the trail to get to the holy man. Like that's where the story is. Mm. That's where the growth happens, is in line to see the holy man. Once you get there, it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) But what what happens to you on the path is what's most important. Right. So that's why I have such an aversion to the whole concept of someone arriving, so to speak, at A Truth with a capital
0: T. No, I mean, the, the best answers that I've arrived at aren't really answers per se. They're more like, oh, I see it's, I just kind of opened another door to like a thousand more questions. So it's, uh, it can be frustrating for those of us. I just want,
1: you know, (laughs) like. But, and that's so that you're describing, but you're describing Buddhism. You're describing the concept of Buddhism that pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. So the part of you that gets frustrated is because you you keep trying to grab a hold of something very slippery. What if you just stopped trying to grab a hold of it and just watched it just, Do what fluid does and just flow and just be like, okay, God is this and God is that and God is this and that and there's nothing God isn't. So stop trying to put a cloud in a jar. Like just, (laughs) you know, that's because that that is what's causing the suffering. It's that attempt to do what is undoable.
0: Okay, so you keep on opening up this like whole thing that I got to ask you about. You describe, oh boy. Well, one of my favorite things that I'm really kind of reckoning with since I first read it, uh, you quoted, you use it a couple of times. I think you ended Buddhist boot camp with this. An easy trek in the wrong direction is ultimately far more exhausting and devastating than an uphill climb toward euphoria. Yeah. yeah. Can you just go into that for me a little bit?
1: <laughs> well, we, we tend to try to find the easiest path. Uh, we're like, oh, I'll take the easy route. I'll take this. I'll take that. Because we want a simple and uncomplicated life where we want to be happy. And and we see, for example, up the mountain, we see a little sign that says, happiness, you know, quarter mile that way. Okay, and then another sign that says happiness, 10 miles up the steep mountain. And we're like, well, I'm going to take this one. Well, that sign was either uh, pointing into another path that goes into another path and or it goes around in a circle and all, whatever it is, it's... I'm trying to, to to find a way to say an easy path in the wrong direction ultimately is far more devastating than an uphill climb toward euphoria. So, meaning don't always take the easy path. It's not necessarily it's not going to take you where you want to go. You know, it's it's right in line with no place worth going has any shortcuts. You know, just why are we afraid to take the harder path? And I'm not saying make our lives difficult. I'm saying if it's frustrating for you to keep trying to find a truth, something you can say, okay, I'm gonna carve this in stone. And it's really frustrating because the moment you carve it, the opposite is proven also true. And so you're like, okay, scratch that. It's it's the, the guy with the tattoos of all his girlfriend's names. And he keeps scratching it out and scratching it out and putting a new name in. What if you just stopped searching for a truth and accepted it all as true? That's That sounds harder because then you're like, but I don't, I don't have any label on this jar. It's like, yes, but ultimately it's a lot easier because you're not chasing your own tail. Right. I don't know if I'm explaining
0: this well. Well, you're tapping into a, a concept that comes up in a few different forms throughout your work and, and you on your podcast. And uh, I've heard you speak in person, looking forward to seeing you again. So, well, there were, there was one part where you, you were talking about beliefs uh, and fears, anxieties, judgments, despair. And then I th- i don't know if this is in one of the um, guided meditations that I was doing, but somebody was talking about noting our thoughts and feelings. It's an, oh, that's oh, no, no. You talked about it when you were like your leg fell like you were you uh, diving off a cliff and your leg broke off basically. And you're like, oh, that's interesting. So and then but kind of let it go. So I was hoping that you could describe that a bit more not not just like physical pain physical experiences but it's it's related to what you're talking about now like not trying to contain it's it's avoiding the adjectives because adjectives what they do is they they define of course
1: i mean that's the that's the purpose they define something you know this is good this is bad this is right this is wrong this is pleasure this is pain you know and then it's just like we keep categorizing everything that way and then you know we are biologically programmed to speed up the thinking process from when we were children to know, oh, this is safe and this is dangerous, you know? So we don't have to keep putting our finger in the socket. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah. Been there, done that, learned the lesson. I don't need to put my finger into every socket to figure that out. <laughs> so that's kind of the idea. And, you know, if it saves us from tigers, great. But if we aren't careful, Adjectives can work very much against us. There's a chapter in the book called Watch Your Language, I think. And it stemmed with uh, this guy was telling me that uh, he came up to me and he's like, Oh man, this was so great. And I really enjoyed uh, listening to you. And because ever since, you know, I went through this horrible, painful divorce 20 years ago that was just tragic and traumatic and it tore the family apart. And I'm like, Can you tell me the story without using adjectives? Mm. And he said, I went through a divorce 20 years ago. Like now, isn't that lighter? And he goes, yeah, I think every time I tell the story, I add another adjective to it. You know, right. tragic, traumatic, horrible, painful. It's just, it's done. You're still here. And I'm not being minimized or nullifying the experience. At the time it was, but we're not there anymore. So it, again, going up the mountain, you picked up some, ro- like what if you just, every rock you came across, you put in your pack and then you're climbing the rest of the mountain with all of those rocks every single time. It's just, honor it be like yeah that was that was tragic at the time that was horrible that was painful that was, all of those things are true and here i am i went through it and i I leave it there and keep going it's the the you're going through i just got back from uh backpacking the wind river range in wyoming and so i apologize that all my references are to climbing and hiking and crossing rivers but this notion that you need to cross a river and there's a boat. It's like, okay, I'm gonna use the boat to cross the river. But then you're like, well, what if there's another river? So you take the boat with you on your back in case there's another (laughs) river. It's like, there was a boat when you needed one. Trust that there's going to be a boat the next time you need one or a bridge or something. Like just, it, we lack so much faith and trust even within the religious community. Every time I speak at a church, the first question I ask is, how many of you believe in God? And they all raise their hand. And then I say, "How many of you worry?" And they all raise their hand. And I'm just like, "You realize you can't do both. You can't believe in God so firmly and worry, because when you worry, you're implying God what missed the memo, or that God is not paying, or that if having faith in God means having faith in her timing, just just can can you accept that?" And yeah, and they realize, and that's like, "Yeah, I'm when I worry, I'm not in touch with my faith, and when I'm in touch with my faith, I don't worry." Yeah. It's yeah. Just like psychologically, we can't entertain two opposing thoughts. Like when you're angry at your spouse, you forgot how grateful you are to be married. When you are so consumed with appreciation, whatever you're angry about goes out the window. We cannot entertain two, two opposing It's cognitive dissonance. We we can't. So, so we introduce these third thoughts, but I don't want to get too deep
0: into that, but I forget even where we started with this thread, but but what you're describing is either a learned skill or the ability to unlearn baggage that's it's, holding it's, you yeah, back. Yeah, it's
1: both, it's, it's both. both. And I remember now where we're talking, we're like naming those demons, like, oh, that's interesting, not using adjectives. And just, if you insist on using adjectives, if you insist on using your creative mind to label, just that's interesting. Because interesting is, inter- it's not wrong. It's not right. It's fascinating. It's just like awe-inspiring. Like, I want to know more. But leave it there just so yeah, naming those demons, honoring it going, that's interesting. And that's, it all stems from that just not labeling because labeling is segregating. Segregation has never solved anything. So again, if we believe in in one and that we're all connected and all, then stop separate. I I don't know if that makes sense. It's just so I don't know if it's a learned be it is a learned behavior, because we can teach ourselves when our mind starts going. Oh, well, that's bad. And it's like, well, okay, add the words for me and mm. right now to the end of that sentence. So yes, it's a learned behavior because I wasn't born a monk. I had to practice because I was trained to label things and to see spiders and go, ooh, spider bad, kill it. You know, and go, wait a minute, spider not bad, spider lost, spider wants to be outside. You know, That that's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is, but that took training to not react, but instead respond. And that's what mindfulness practice does. It introduces a pause between impulse and response. So yeah, it's learned behavior. I don't think I have some superpower.
0: So that's the meditation practice. So over time, uh, Rick Hansen talks about it as literally like rewiring your brain. And it is. And and scientifically, we are creating new neural pathways so that Mm. the
1: way I describe it, because we're all familiar with smartphones, when you click on a button, it opens a certain app. But if there's a bug, you click on a button and instead of you being happy or sad, all of a sudden you're angry. It's like, so wait, we need to rewrite that. So when you see someone on the road cutting you off, instead of that launching the anger program, when you see someone cutting you off on the road, you go, eh, maybe they have to pee, you know? So you just, you're just rewriting the program. You're not making them bad. You're not making them good. You're just, it is, and then that becomes a new path where your brain no longer goes to demonizing everything and everyone who disagrees with you it just goes well that's interesting and yeah. it has nothing to do with me i don't know that doesn't that sound more peaceful
0: it, it does i so i i was curious about you you described one uh, one experience you had you, uh, it, it was a host that you stayed with uh you were uh, along your journeys that you had a lot in common with the like oh, yeah, 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 environmentally yeah, yeah. conscious <laughs> Could you share that because i was curious about you know did you have conversations with, well, I, let me just, uh, so you were staying with someone, both vegetarians, environmentally conscious, into yoga, all of these uh, similar values, but where you deferred is in how he was He was um, contentious. I showed I up
1: expecting us to get along royally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. just be like, oh, this is going to be great. But the moment I showed up, yeah, he was so judgmental of anyone who wasn't vegetarian, wow. who wasn't environmentally conscious. And he was just like, oh, those people in those gas guzzling cars, you know, and I'm just like, Okay. Okay. Did you not drive one of those like five years ago? Like what, what, what gives you this superiority complex? And then he talked about like veganism and anger. And I haven't, I've been plant-based for more than 20 years, but like, I never tell anyone what, you know, just what to do and just you do you, you know, and yet as, as angry and outspoken as he was about veganism and, and animal rights and all that stuff in his bathroom was a toothpaste that was tested on animals. So I'm just like, how about cleaning your own front stoop before you start telling other people what to do with their life? Like there's plenty to do here, people. Like there's plenty to do internally before we start pushing our values on anyone else. Does
0: that, I don't know if that's what you were
1: getting at, but it was just fascinating that I thought we would get along so well, but he was so full of anger and rage and self-righteousness that we didn't get along. I, I, because I wasn't self-righteous enough for it. You know what I mean? It was just so
0: fascinating that- My being p- peaceful pissed him off. <laughs> right, right. But that's also, I wonder though, now that I'm thinking about it, is that sense of, like, we're all evangelicals in a way. Like, we're just evangelizing our own shtick, you know, our own thing. Um, but is is the evangelizing part, like the the feeling compelled to sell it or impose it on others, is does that come with the territory? No. Or is I- that... Tendency learned over time. That comes
1: with insecurities. Mm. If you are secure about your beliefs, you don't need to tell anyone about them because you're secure. You don't need it validated. You don't need it confirmed. You don't need anyone to agree with you. It's just your path. You're good. You're golden. But the moment you are insecure about it, you're not sure. You need it validated. You want to hear it back. You want to feel affirmed. You want to get, yes, there's a billion people behind me who believe the same thing. So I I do think it's a learned behavior, nonviolent communication, NVC, which is a wonderful study of how to communicate with one another, literally calls unsolicited advice, a form of bullying. If someone didn't ask you, you know, and you're telling them, you're, you can't give by throwing, you know, like they didn't ask for it. So that may feel like you're, it's just, and we don't like it when people do it to us when yeah. people tell us what we should do again nvc the word should is the most hostile word in our language so i don't think it's inherent no i
0: at all i don't i don't yeah i love how you explicitly say i think toward the beginning of buddhist boot camp there are no shoulds in this book <laughs> yeah. like okay
1: and let me tell you with this third book the reason it was so delayed is i um I contacted one of my favorite authors and I asked him, you know, who's your editor? Cause I need to find a really good one. I can just give this material to trust them with it and then get it back and just trust them that they they know what my intention are. They've read my other books, they understand. And I found one and uh, he referred me to to her and uh, she went through, she read the other books and I told her, no should statements. These are all personal stories that I'm just sharing with my experience. The personal stories is what they're not personal at all. Meaning we're all battling similar demons. There's nothing unique about me. And so it's about making it relatable, you know, and conversational. And there's no, there's no shoulds. What I got back from her almost a year later was so the exact opposite of what I asked. She literally went into every chapter, took out the personal story and added the word should or shouldn't. So she turned every personal story into a lecture. Oh, wow. Of saying I have arrived. Here's what I know. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, what, what just happened? I just I read through the whole thing and I was just like, this is so not what I and she acknowledged it. She's like, I'm really sorry. I don't know what happened. I I typically pride myself in my ability to communicate something. Went, here's all the money back. Just figure it out. And so that's why it was so delayed because I had to go through the whole process all over again. But yes, you're right. No should statements, no pushing, just I mean, the the way we feel interconnected to one another is through vulnerability and honesty and just raw awareness of like, here is what I'm insecure about. And someone goes, oh yeah, me too. I'm like, great. You know, that's that we have that in common. Now, hair color doesn't have to be the same, but our human experience is very much alike.
0: So the first book, Buddhist Bootcamp, is really a collection of communications that you had um yeah, when I when I sold everything and moved
1: to Hawaii and, and quit my job and everything, and I just sent a letter to my friends every month to let them know what's going on with me. And after eight years, one of my friends said, You need to publish those letters. That's so, yeah, awesome. Every, every chapter is only about a page long, and you can read them in any order. It's just and it reads exactly as that, as as you know, an email you get from a friend going, Here's what I did today, you know, and it's it's and yet at first. And those are the ones that didn't make it into book. All my emails to my friends were like, I played volleyball today. But then <laughs> <laughs> when I, you know, started studying and 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 freed up so much of my time, the emails became, here's something I, I've i been doing to create my own agony that I didn't realize until recently I oh, was doing. Yeah. And they go, oh my God, I do the same thing, you know? Yeah. But all I did was share my experience. Right. I didn't share it going, here's what you're doing. Like, no, no this is what I did and realized it wasn't benefiting me. And people read it going, I'm doing that too. So that's where we have a shared experience, not when someone tells you what you should do.
0: Yeah. So the second book is more, there's a lot of similarities because you can, you know, many chapters and I was, you know, as I was reading through it, I'm like, I'm gonna go read through these again, but I'm just gonna like, let them sit. It's more conversational. Yeah. Yeah, because, and you like, I can, I can read, a page or two and then just go meditate on that for a bit yeah. you know Good. so the second book is a little bit more story your your life story stuff like that yeah
1: what happened was after buddhist boot camp people really wanted to know the story behind like how did you get there and i'm like yeah you yeah because i because i toured with buddhist boot camp for three years oh wow cons- three consecutive years of sleeping on a different couch every night just across UK, Australia, and then I was, and and the questions, no matter where I went, were kind of similar. Like we want to know the story behind the story. How did you Buddhist boot Bootcamp's great, but how did you get there? Where'd you come from? So that's what the second book answers. If you and I were to go on a hike together, and you were to say, "Tell me your life story," blah, that's what I would tell you. That's mm-hmm. faithfully religionless, and that's how where I arrived, realizing I have a tremendous amount of faith. It's just not tied to any religion. So I think going back to where we first started it's really important for me especially with my work is that religion god the bible the church they're all very different things yes completely separate so you can yeah. have faith in god and hate the church you can love the church but not really believe in god you you know what i mean and then you can love god my friend oh my gosh she's the one who introduced me to this idea she was the most religious person i've ever met and yet she never read the bible and i was just like What? And she's like, My experience with God is very personal to me. Since then, she's married a preacher. You know, she's all the stuff she's all about it now. But growing up, she had so much faith in God. But it wasn't because someone told her to, it wasn't because she read it in a book somewhere. So that was really mind blowing to me that no one shoved it down her throat. She just had her own experience. I was like, Wow, tell me more about your God. You know? So for me god church religion bible very very different from one another you don't have to it just this is your path you know uh again and through hiking that we say hike your own hike you know do it what works for you like i i don't know it's it would be so detrimental to tell someone how to do it
0: okay so i want to ask you about the third book but since we're talking about this mm. i think there there are a couple other, I don't even want to call them issues because it that makes it sound like we're at odds with each other, Uh-oh. but it was just more like, oh, well, that's different. So one is, one of the things I derive from religious experience is that we're more in community than we are in isolation. And at times I felt that, you know, it's like, what I was thinking of was, was jazz. You know, Monk is a brilliant, Felonius Monk is a brilliant, you know, virtuoso of the 20th century. He was even more brilliant when he was playing with Coltrane. I don't know if you're into jazz or anything, but you know, or, or, and I know you're not really into sports, but, um, but like one more player. More so than jazz, believe it or not. <laughs> so one player can't play every position at once. No, no. You know, But I was also thinking of it like when we go through life, when we're celebrating something, or when we're in mourning about something, it's life is much more livable when we're in the company when when we're among loved ones, and not it, it, it's much more excruciating, if you will, in isolation. So at times we're I, never
1: alone. That's just it. That's the notion that your community. And again, I don't, I don't think we're at odds. I just. I'm alone a lot, and I'm never lonely. Mm -hmm. My community is everyone outside my door. It doesn't matter what they believe in. So my sense of community doesn't derive from people who all believe what I do, who all read the same book. Right. I see. Yeah. So there's still a tremendous sense of community. I mean, it's just not limited to people of my color or my faith or my... That's so limited because that that implies someone of a different, that doesn't relate or can't understand the, the human experience. Or in fact, it minimizes my human experience. If they only, there's a chapter in the book called echo chamber that you just end up hearing what you already believe. And it just reaffirms what you believe. And it's just, it's not growth, it's stagnation. I don't, right. that that's, makes that's sense. my issue.
0: Yeah. So it's, you're sort of letting go of that um, possessiveness or territory, like the my people-ishness yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. So much so that,
1: yeah, I mean, I mean, beyond people, you don't look at at cows or pigs any different than you do dogs and cats. Like we're all beings on this planet. How can you justify, you know, petting one and eating another? It just doesn't, oh, just does not make sense to me. Except in our own little egotistical world, we make this okay and this not okay, and we need to be around other people who are also doing it because that makes us feel better about ourselves. No one wants to hear good news about their bad habits. They hate it. They just need to be surrounded by people by community who reaffirm for them, you're a good person, everything's okay. You're you're gonna go to heaven, everything's gonna be all right. And it's like that's what we want to be around. And I think it's really detrimental because we're not growing. Mm. We're not, we're not asking, well, what about the people who aren't in this room? Does that mean they're not going to heaven? Well, that seems what kind of God would do that? You know, there's a wonderful. I want to touch on something you said real quick about sports. So, I grew up watching my dad play indoor volleyball, and I started playing a lot of indoor volleyball when I lived in Washington. And then when I moved to Hawaii, I switched to beach doubles. But every tournament, every game, every team I've ever played with, yes, each player has their role, right? There's a middle blocker, there's a libero. Typically, a libero, which is the back row player, he's the defensive specialist. He's like five foot two to five foot six, tiny, agile, quick, fast, and amazing. They're my favorite player on any team. But a Libera can't be a middle blocker. Middle blockers typically six foot seven. You know, they're huge, (laughs) they're massive, they're there to block the ball. Yeah. However, every coach I've ever had made us just be so capable of passing, of blocking, of hitting, and of setting. So we know each doesn't mean we're going to be a star at each role, but it means we can if we need to. It's just about expanding your athleticism and even appreciating you know what other players on the team do if you if you want to step away from sports i loved it when i worked for companies where you cannot be a manager because you were hired on as a manager you had to have started out in the same place as everyone else on the floor you had to start cleaning the bathrooms you had to start you know doing the inventory you had to start by everything so that at no point does a manager ask something of someone that they didn't have to do themselves Everyone. I, I had a, a friend who worked at a hotel. He, he was hired to work their reception desk. But before he answered a single phone call, he had to spend an entire month doing housekeeping, doing janitorial work, doing uh, the catering, everything. So that at no point as a receptionist does he not know what everyone else in the building is doing, what their job looks like, and what, you know, does that make sense? This notion of understanding that everyone has an important role to play and no one's more important than the other.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now there's um, a fella who this company I'm involved with, I, I invested in a window cleaning pressure washing company about 10 years ago. And uh, a friend of mine came into the company and he was originally just gonna hang out for a couple months, do some sales because he's you know very accomplished salesperson. And um, I just assumed he'd be swept up, um, but it looked like, he was going to hang out with the company for a lot longer. So we're like, all right, Brandon, you got to go out and do some windows, my man. <laughs> and he fully embraced it. It gave him so much credibility with our crew because yeah. he understood what it was Yeah, like When to- you're
1: sending someone on a job, you know what you're expecting of them. You know, it's going to take, if someone's like, well, why isn't my room ready? it's like, well, I've done housekeeping. I know how long it takes to turn a room and know what conditions some people leave it in. And I'm not going to get mad at my housekeeping people because they're not working fast enough. Like I get it. I've been there. I've done it. You know what I mean? Those kind of that level of awareness doesn't come from sticking with only people. I mean, when I worked at law firms, lawyers were not to hang out with paralegals. Paralegals were not to hang out with reception. It was just this really strange Again, segregation, it all boils down to segregation. And I just don't think it's ever solved anything. It only creates more problems, hierarchy, uh, exclusivity, and superiority complexes that just the ego thrives on that. It loves it. It feels so seen. And but all that's being seen is the ego within, not the God within. The God within is the one who welcomes everyone. The ego is like, oh, you're one of my people. That's why I my issue with community being limited to only people who believe the same thing or are the same color or we speak the same. That's just so limited. I think Jesus talked about all that. Right. So, yeah. So, yeah, just unity being a community being much bigger than people who have the same color as you.
0: So something that you said um, reminded me my brother has I mentioned my brother has a few questions. Oh yeah! As for our audience, for our yeah. listeners, um, Eddie is the one who introduced me to Timber's work in the first place, and I'm really appreciative. Uh, so, one question that Eddie had, he said, one common misconception about Buddhism is related to the concept of attachments and giving up one's attachments to the people you love. So, we ask, can you clarify how it is that one can be liberated from attachment yet love the people who are important to you more deeply?
1: Oh, because in in the west love and attachment come hand in hand but love and attachment are opposites in the sense that i mean attachment is fear based it is i'm i'm scared of losing you you're mine it's very possessive you know that's attachment that's like i i like this i don't want to live without it you know and it creates fear and anxiety and it's like and love is just open and accepting and fluid and it's the opposite of possessiveness. I think of the the man I saw walk on stage and he introduced uh, the woman with him. He said, this is the woman who walks beside me. Not my wife, not my yeah. part. She wasn't mine, there was no possessiveness to it. It was just like, we're walking next to each other. We love each other. To me, love, and I think it was Thich Han who said, love someone in such a way that they feel free. Mm. You know, where they're not confined, they're not restricted. It's It's why I don't understand, like if you, if you love a dog, but you keep it tight on the leash in the front yard, like that's, I don't understand the, the need to control and limit it's, so that's to me non-attachment is, is really the, the first step to accepting things as they are, rather than how we think they should be. So again, the should, the, the, the bullying, that's not loving. It's, it's ironic that
0: you're talking about dogs tied in the, clearly my dogs are not tied in the front yard. Yeah, They're I can feelings. hear them running and I'm so happy. I love it. <laughs> Participate in our conversation. Yes, 100%. Yeah. It's,
1: so maybe wrap up with this, that many poets and psychologists and authors and screenwriters and philosophers for all time have all tried to describe love. And I really think that Dalai Lama nailed it. He said, love is the absence of judgment. That's it. That's love. The moment there's judgment, there's no love. So I I just meditate on that. You know, that love is the absence of judgment. It's just that that says everything to me. It's whether we love our children or we love uh, someone romantically or we love our parents. It's the absence of judgment is we allow them to be who they are and we are grateful they choose to have us in their, in their life, but by choice, not because they have to not from a sense of obligation or possessiveness or some contract, but
0: because they choose to,
1: that's yeah. so loving.
0: Yeah. So I, I need to follow up on, sorry, I have more questions. Um, this won't go on forever though. I, I joked about like nine or 10 hours. This could easily for me, but I promise I won't do that to you. I, ha- I only have a couple more questions. Um, well, I have a lot more questions, but for now, um, so on a related note at one point you in the second book you were saying in faithfully religionless you were saying that you made a vow to always contemplate whether your decisions were love based or fear based and to only make love based decisions so how are you able to tell the difference and and maybe can you give us an example of what that might look like
1: yeah and and, and recognizing that even sometimes when we make a decision and we think it's love based we later realize oh nope there is there was fear there disguised as something else, or there was ego there, you know, pretending to be something else. So just in the moment with the information we have, we make the best decision possible. And so, I mean, a very easy example, and again, this is not gonna sit well with many people, but to ask yourself, if I loved myself, would I eat this? Would I drink this? Would I do this? Would I be with this person? If I loved myself, if I truly loved myself, if I loved my health, would I do this? That's a tough question to ask, you know. Um, there's there's a restaurant in Seattle with a slogan: "Eat like you give a damn," and I <laughs> love that. You know, it's like because the question is, "Well, give a damn about what?" It's well, that's up to you. But are because the alternative is eating like you don't, you know. And so, if if I look at the decision and the reason I'm at a job that I hate is because I'm 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 scared of leaving and and then not having enough money and then not being able to then it's then the reason I'm at that job is fear-based. It's not love-based. It's not because I love doing what I do and I trust and I have faith that, you know, if when I do what I love, I can actually make ends meet. It's and again, I'm I'm aware that some people are in circumstances that are challenging. But when we make a commitment to make love-based decisions, we don't live in fear. It's 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 that simple. It's just Again, programming, a lot of it is programming to don't, you know, again, we were raised, don't do this. This will lead to that. Don't do that. You know, whether, again, religion, like you do this, you go to hell. That's that's fear-based. Like you are driven and motivated to do certain things and not do certain things, not because you have some moral compass, but because you're terrified, not you specifically. But when you're raised that way, you're terrified that if you make a wrong step, you will be burning in hell for all of eternity. That is a great selling strategy but that's no way to live. That's terrifying.
0: Am, am I wrong? So, yeah, no, you're not wrong. I think, though, and this is for another conversation, but I think, though, where I, where it wasn't quite settled with me. There, there were some things that I was reading that was like, oh, yes, 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 yes. You know, but then there were others were like, well, well, good, I'm glad.
1: Those good. are the ones, the ones that don't sit well with you. Those are the ones that I that good, that, that provide contemplation. It doesn't mean
0: we need to agree on them, but what right. were they? Well, for, there were a number of critiques because you studied you're not someone who just like from afar critiques and wags your finger at religion generally.
1: And again, and I'm not wagging my finger at it. I'm saying this, this is why I left. This did not sit well with me. Yeah. If it works for you, if your sense, and I've said in the book again, you know, I said, it, it does offer a sense of community to a lot of people. Religion does a lot of really good disaster relief work in the world. You know, they do. It's great. I just, I don't understand personally why it needs to be made and done under the umbrella of religion other than mm-hmm. why not just humanity. But, you know, it's – I I do acknowledge religion has some really good stuff in the world. It's just not – it's a shoe that doesn't fit me.
0: Yeah, yeah, but that that's – I think that's where specifically I thought that some of the critiques were based on religion's abuses or scriptures, you know, uh, manipulative interpretations and and things like that. And I think that – the critique needs to include that because religion is abused often throughout history, right? Uh, but yeah, and that's fair because if you read the, the all of, you know, the entire book, then yeah, you do give a fair shake. And in fact, you have great collaborations, you know, the Grace Cathedral and, you know, like- Oh, there's- yeah. I, must, I, I speak at a different
1: church every Sunday. You know what I mean? There is no- Animosity right it's and it's all just an invitation to make room at the table for someone who is not the same religion as you, not the same color as you, not the same background or race. just make room at the table for someone else yeah, you know eat, eat your chicken, but please make a vegetable dish as well. you know what I mean like just right make I'm not going to tell you what to do except exclusivity is detrimental to everyone involved it judges. Which is by definition not loving. And if God is loving and we are to be Godlike, don't judge. Yeah. I don't care how you justify it to yourself, if judgment is still judgment, bigotry wrapped in a prayer is still bigotry.
0: You know, I got to a point where I mentioned this guy, John MacArthur, earlier, and I realized he has a lot of either or propositions. He has a lot of like, either you believe this or you're not a Christian kind of a thing. And I'm like, man, that just doesn't work for me, you know, because either your interpretation or we're all, you know, to your point, going to hell. I'm like, either you're right or you're wrong about that. And I think you're wrong. So at the end of the day, I had kind of an either or about it as well, but also Mm. not, you know, to be sarcastic about it, but like, I do think at the end of the day, there are some either or propositions that I couldn't quite get around, mm-hmm. you know? So, I mean, getting into ph- philosophy or, or theology, either God exists or there is no God.
1: Or it doesn't matter or it's completely irrelevant. That's another option. That it's just a construct. It's, a, it's something to keep your mind busy. It's like, a you know, it won't get you anywhere. It's, it's like a rocking chair. It's great, but it's not, it's not going to, you know what I mean? It's whether or not Jesus said it or Buddha or Muhammad, Muhammad, that doesn't matter. Why Mm. does that matter? That's what I mean. There is another option. It's not either this or that just.
0: I'm kind of there with you, but in a different way, like God's existence isn't contingent upon me believing in God or not, (laughs) you know, like if God
1: exists, God exists, whether but even that even that it's if yeah it's
0: and and i loved maybe maybe we don't know and you're a better surfer than i am <laughs> i only caught 1 2 foot face one time because i was always looking for the thing like okay you know i can't do this surfer thing but i got to try it i got to try it it's surfing. and that's the idea
1: of you know the first principle in buddhist boot camp is that the opposite of what you know is also true to yeah. somebody else somewhere else because of their time place and circumstance yeah so If we can make peace with that, we can make peace with everything. So at the end of every sentence, just add the words for me right now. And then it just loses that rigidity that I think that you also struggle with, with either or, or it's got to be this, it's got to be that. I'm like, it's, it's all of it and it's none of it and it doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. You know, do good for the sake of doing good, period. Yeah. I'm getting better, I think, at being in the moment and the meditation is definitely helping with that. And even some like is one of my favorite Jewish theologians of the 20th century, was said, talked about every moment is another act of creation, mm-hmm. but it's like the, where we are right now is our intersection with eternity.
1: Absolutely. That's so. I have a tattoo on my arm of that intersection. Exactly. You know, it's like we get so caught up in the the horizontal, the yesterday, today and tomorrow and picking up the dry cleaning and all that. But right here right now that the vertical the oneness with the divine with with the present moment all of that and yeah every once in a while our daily interactions at a you know sync up and we're in that perfect crux you know of that in that moment but it's not like once you make it you're like oh i've arrived i can stop no here I am it's it's slippery it's just <laughs> right. there's an old story i heard and i wish i knew the details to it but it was a group of women a group of women who hiked to the i think the south pole or somewhere And it's treacherous climb, you know, hike to um, in snow and horrible conditions. And it's on an ice shelf that's shifting, you know. And so they're they're constantly checking their, their instruments to go, are we heading in the right direction? And it's like, oh, we're there. Well, now we're not, you know, it's just it kept changing. And I think that's exactly it. And so just we are where we need to be right now. This is, I don't know, it's so beautiful to just enjoy the moment because otherwise you're not you're robbing yourself of the joy in the moment because you're either worried about the past or you're worried about the future it is just it's a waste of time and time is the greatest gift we've been given and we take it for granted we we abuse it we waste it we we try to kill time it's like just love it just yeah we say we want a leisurely life and yet we rarely do anything leisurely this conversation has been great. You know, like there was no rigidity to it. There was oh, no okay. I we have to stick to those questions and we have to do this right now and we, we got to keep it to 45 minutes. It was like let's just go and hang out. See where it takes us and here we I are. I do
0: have a rigid question for
1: you. Oh boy, here we go. Tell me about your third book. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's truly about what we've been talking about all day. Okay. Uh it's called The Opposite of Namaste. Okay. Uh I know, uh, <laughs> namaste, you know, is often defined as, you know, the divinity in me acknowledges and sees and honors the divinity in you. And that's really easy to do when you're surrounded by people who all agree with you and are all kind and generous and loving. It's like, oh, namaste, I, I, I see the God in you. But what happens when you're surrounded by people who are rude and and mean and cold and insensitive and and selfish and their decisions negatively affect you can you can you namaste them too you know and i think that the reason for that the, we need something that that implies the opposite of namaste which is the ego in me sees the ego in you like i get why you do what you do there's an ego in me too you know there's a selfish part you know i get it and when the moment you get it there's no judgment it it It's that there's understanding. There's that level of openness again to allow more people at the table. It's everything we've been talking about today. And the book is a collection of the podcast episodes. So every Buddhist Bootcamp podcast episode is less than 10 minutes long. They're just food for thought. One of those things, like you said, you can just read a chapter and then go meditate on it. That's the idea. You can read them in any order. It just took a really long time to curate them and put them and just, present them in such a way that resonates, uh, without a single should statement in the book. Okay. Second to last question.
0: Do you have any more questions for me?
1: What do you hope to accomplish with this platform?
0: So my niece, a few years ago, my, my youngest niece, uh, Eddie has two daughters and it, she said a version of what's now i guess it's a popular expression like be the change that you want to see in the world
1: yeah it's it's a gandhi quote but yes it's okay be the change yeah
0: okay so i because i often found myself having conversations about politics and religion you know having been a jew growing up orthodox synagogue becoming a christian having conversations about religion and then being in the american evangelical church I also found myself having conversations about politics because evangelical church, not sure if you know, newsflash, it's a lot more political and social, or it's driven by a lot more political and social issues uh, than it is about what I, why I came to accept Jesus, as they say, was theological propositions. So I found myself having these conversations about politics and it often did not go well. So I was hoping to be better and and develop a muscle, if you will, or develop a, a skill of doing this thing better. Mm-hmm. Because these are important conversations, you, you know, but they've been hijacked, including by people like me who can be really obnoxious and take all the oxygen out of the room because I'm the most opinionated. And then nobody else, like, I don't know, I, I, did you say, did I read it in your book? I don't know what you're thinking when I'm talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So I, I wanted to get better at it, but I also wanted to have those conversations. And we were starting to have them around the fire pit. Um, I wanted to have those conversations and then share them with folks that hey, we could do this thing. We could do we could talk about things across our differences. We don't even have to come out the other side agreeing on everything.
1: No, no. I I yeah. Then and, and I love that. That's a great answer to, to be able to have it and I'm just curious, and I'm hoping, you know, because I, I tell people all the time, go go read not just the website of your political party that tells you what they believe. Unplug your keyboard, but go read the other side's website as well. And I say unplug the keyboard because don't comment. Don't, don't, don't get into it with people. Just listen for the sake of understanding, not judging and not condemning, but just right. listen. Um, I... I'll tell you, the only thing I know for certain is that I don't know anything for certain, which is why I never argue with anyone about anything. I just listen. And and I, I enter every conversation assuming that I'm actually wrong, not right. Mm. And I look for ways to where you can shed light on something it's like, oh, thank you for shedding light on that. I did not see that. And it's very refreshing. It's it's like, it's yoga, it's, but it's yoga for the mind. It's you're stretching and you're like, okay, I've got, I got more room now and and my heart's bigger, not smaller. And I don't know, it's a really great, so I'm really appreciating that you are bringing this conversation and I'm hoping, um, what I was saying is that people are able to listen all the way through instead of hearing one thing and saying, nope, I'm out, you know, or reading one chapter in the book that doesn't agree with them and saying, well, then I don't like the rest. It's just keep going, you know, just this is, it won't hurt you. <laughs>
0: So it's interesting when I get engagement online, I I find sometimes the conversations can go really well, uh, but you know, uh, social media is what it is. So sometimes the posts will get the most engagement from people who only read the headline and they didn't read anything else. They didn't listen to the conversation. They just read something and it just triggered. And then Off we go to the races. And that's, so
1: now you're talking about mindfulness again, where we are triggered. It's that's a reaction, not a response. Yeah, yeah. that's the difference. That's what mindfulness does is introduces a gap between impulse and response. So if someone reads just the headline and they react, that is not skillful speech. That Mm -hmm. is a reaction. If they respond, if they listen and they contemplated all the points given, and then they go, I have a response to that. Then those are probably the, the better conversations you're having online. But if it's just a reaction, Again, they're online trolls. Their whole point is just to get more reaction, you know, and
0: and you can feed into it or not. Just yeah, let it sit. It's sad for me when that shutdown shuts down a thread because there are other people mm-hmm. who are more thoughtful and measured and really want to learn something, uh, but then you just you don't want to get in the way of two monkeys throwing poop at each other. <laughs> you know no that's
1: that's one way to put it but man no you don't that it's gonna take me a while to shake that visual out of (laughs) my head but no and 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 that is what the online platform can sometimes turn into um but maybe we're here to learn how to duck
0: and dive around (laughs) around the poop throwing (laughs) um all right so hawkeye publishers Buddhist bootcamp. Tell us how we can find you online and, and learn more about all the great work. All that of it. Uh, Buddhist
1: Buddhistbootcamp.com or timberhawkeye.com. They all go to the same place also on social media, uh, with Facebook and Instagram and, and the, the Buddhist bootcamp podcast. Uh, that's the reason I'm doing that is because I want to meet people where they are. Mm. You know, I don't want to force anything on if, if you're comfortable with this platform, you'll get something out of it. If you want the books, great. If you want the podcast, great. You know, it's just, it's a message that has enriched my own life so much. And if I can share it and have someone who's interested in it, again, again, what I love about the platform, no one's there without wanting to be there. I'm not pushing anything on anyone. I'm sharing it. The only people hearing it are people who chose to be there. Mm. It's, it's such, I love that platform because we're all there by choice. And if you don't like it, just keep scrolling. Just keep scrolling.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. Well, I really appreciate you spending the time. I hope this is not the last time. I'm actually gonna see you in in about a week and a half. Oh. I think, yeah. It's really encouraging how accessible and you make yourself and approachable you are. So I really appreciate that. And as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcast and tell a friend about talking politics and religion, not killing each other. We're having great conversations just like this one. Now go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect, and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's what the "and" spelled out, A-N-D. politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials, at tpandrpod. You know, tpandrpod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us, by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.